Welcome to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. Join us as we share our favorite RPGs, one-shot games, tabletop games, reviews, and convention panels. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, assigned to Ragnarok Story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming to Minorities in Science Fiction and Fantasy, where we will talk about something tangential to that in some way. Um, Well, I guess my name is Wendy Trickis. I'm here as the fan representation. I am not an author. Um, But uh, I had asked uh, about this panel to happen because it is a conversation, especially when we're seeing more representation of underrepresented communities in both fan- in all of fandom, um, from film to books and stuff. I, I wanted to hear input from folks who do the creation. And so I was like, I want this panel. They went, great, you're on it. <laughs> so, Hi. <laughs> so, I'm Mary. I write sci-fi and fantasy, mostly for young adults. These are two of my titles, Stronger Than a Bronze Dragon, which is about a girl who slays demons, and Found Footage, which is about a cryptid. It's about Mantis Man. I also co-edit the Brave New Girls anthology series, which, by the way, is currently open for... Oh, thanks. Maybe do that one for the All right, this play copy of uh, Star Swept. I also co-edit the Brave New Girls anthologies about girls doing techie things in sci-fi worlds, which, by the way, are currently open for submissions. So if you're interested, um, you can go to my website, and then there's a link to Brave New Girls there, or it's bravenewgirls.weebly.com. Yeah, that's me. Hi, I'm Tamsin Silver, and I'm an author with Falstaff Books. And um, I write both urban fantasy and historical fantasy. Um, My urban fantasy is a lot of strong female heroes, and um, I have a web series out called Sky of the Damned. Uh, My most recent is my Billy the Kid series, which is real history of Billy the Kid that I've wrapped in Irish folklore, and book three just came out in September. So we're happy to finally have the whole set out. Um, Writing during a pandemic was not a good time. Um, And so uh, that's me. That's really all there is. Next. (laughs) I'm Marcus Campbell. I'm a poet from Mesa, Arizona. I write for Brick Cave Media. It's a fantasy, sci-fi, and poetry publisher out of Mesa. Um, So I'm here mainly to learn and get to know everybody as I'm writing my first novels. That's my first collection. Wonderful. Good to be here with everybody. So, um, well, I guess because I asked for this panel, I should probably ask some questions. Because we've decided you're the moderator. Yeah. We've never made this decision. So I talked to Mary a little bit before. There's a lot of reasons. Later in my adult life, that I realized the majority of the science fiction and fantasy that I consumed 
as a young adult, as a teen, as an adult, um, were uh, written by white men and some white women um, with no representation in the characters. And, and it wasn't until then that I actively started seeking out um, other fiction, and I love it just as much, if not more. There's different authors. Right now I'm obsessed with M.P. Jemison, and if you haven't read anything by her, um, anything you pick up is going to be an adventure. Uh, but um, that was part of the reason why I was just like, I think this kind of panel would be really interesting to, to hear the feedback from people who create um, materials that we consume that may not fit or don't fit into that original traditional norm of science fiction, white men, white women, um, colonial kind of uh, viewpoints, and bring other cultures that aren't Western, American, or European culture uh, into into these fictions that we love, you know, this, these fandoms that we love. So um, now I need to come up with a question. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not used to Tuscan and moderating, so. Uh, because we don't. Uh, <laughs> we could all just start with our right. individual spiels, I guess. That was kind of what I was wanting to get at. So if there's any kind of, if you want to go down the line and kind of maybe talk, touch on those topics. Sure. Time. So I am Chinese-American. My parents were immigrants. They came to the States in the 80s for grad school and then just kind of like settled down. And I was born here. Here's the thing about growing up as a kid in the 90s and who's Chinese-American in North Carolina, by the way. Oh. oh. You were the only one. Yes. And so you didn't even realize sometimes that you were Chinese. Like, you were just like, I'm a kid like everybody else. And so you watch the same TV as everybody else. And, you know, if you watch Star Trek, everybody's like, you know, like, ooh, like, look, Star Trek. It's, like, pretty diverse, right? Um, but you don't think about it when you're a kid. And then you start growing up, and then everything around you is white. Like, I love Star Wars, for example, but it's mostly white. And that starts being your default. So I remember the very first time I wrote a book, I was 12 years old. It was a space adventure, and the crew was all white. Because to me, this is what space crews were like, just because I grew up in North Carolina, I watched the same TV as everybody else. I'm not thinking, ooh, I'm going to represent Chinese people like I was 12. I just wanted to write a space story, and to me, space stories were white. Fast forward 10 years, I'm now 22, and I've been through college. I sit down to write my first novel, and I made the main character white again, because that is just where my brain defaulted to. And then eventually I was kind of like, wait, I'm the one writing it though. Can't I make her Asian? And then I was like, wait, that feels like going too far. We'll make her half Asian, we'll compromise, which is a whole problem by itself, because of course, being biracial is an identity by itself. It's not a compromise, but that's where my mind went, just because of you know all this baggage I was carrying with me. Um, and it wasn't until, I think, Stronger Than a Bronze Dragon that I wrote something that felt like Asian because it takes place in like an alternate China kind of thing. But the weird thing about being Chinese American is I am first and foremost American. Like I grew up in North Carolina. I moved to New Jersey when I was 14. Like for many years, I was the only Asian kid in my school and you didn't run around like saying, I'm Asian, you just like, you try to fit in, and I think that's why most of my fiction, even though I'm a Chinese-American author, isn't what people would think of as Chinese-American fiction. It is not about the immigrant experience. It's not about being the only Asian kid in school. I didn't want to write that. Like, I already lived it. Why would I want to write it? And so I feel like you get pressure from both sides. Like, first they were saying, you can't hide Chinese people at all, and now they're saying you're not Chinese enough. Mm. That's my spiel. <laughs> 
I'm super white. <laughs> so I'm not a minority at all. Um, super Scottish and British and French and German and everyone's like, oh, I did my DNA test. I said, yep, mine just shows I'm super white. <laughs> I'm very European. Um, but um, I have been writing stories since I, I'm old enough that basically my writing started on an electric typewriter in the basement in Michigan. And um, in, of course, I always wrote stories about people who were white because that's all I saw on TV and that's all my family was and that's all that was in Michigan that I knew of. Uh, and then I started getting older and like I started realizing uh, my school was definitely a mix of color because it was Michigan and we had a lot of African-American we had a lot of different and and we then when I went to school Western Michigan University there's a large Asian population there and they and it's just wonderful because they still speak their native language and so it was just wonderful to me and I was just like this is this is what I love and I started, I moved to New York City. And if you want a melting pot of everything, <laughs> and you get to see it on the subway, and they're all sitting next to each other. And, and ignoring each other. And ignoring each other because they're busy listening to their own music and hanging out. Um, but when I started really writing, I, I because I was living in New York, and because I'd reached a point where I really liked diverse uh, representation, and not because it was like something people were talking about, yes, but that's what I saw. So my first series, the Windfire series, um, like the witches, I made one of them is African American, one of them is uh, Japanese, one of them is, and and because I, that's what I saw, that's what I was used to seeing where I lived was a diverse group of people and I wanted that in my book. Uh, Moon Over Manhattan is a new series coming out and when I was creating the Wolf Pack, I was very intentional. And again, this was in 2010 before like, people were like, you need to be diverse. But I was like, I want someone who is from India. I want someone in the pack who is African-American. I want someone who, like, I wanted this diverse team. It was important to me to see that because that was what I lived. I saw it all the time and I loved it. And um, it's one of the reasons why when I moved from New York City to New Mexico, because New Mexico, you would think, oh, is that diverse? It is, there's like 19 different tribes. Um, and I love the fact that you can hear different things when you walk through the hospital. And so, uh, to me, the world has always been a little more, even though it's primarily been white, there's always been a diverse, and I think that, to me, as a writer and to as a person, it's always been what I thrived on and what I enjoyed most about living there. Um, and so I made sure that I put that in my books because I thought it was important. Uh, I'm a poet, so diversity for me is... Um a matter of like reflecting on the individual communities that I'm speaking on, um, or speaking of, or for. Um, well, I guess not for, that's the wrong word. Um, <laughs> attempting to express the feelings or opinions of a particular group. Um, so I guess mine is a little bit different. Um, diversity for me may be a little bit less intentional. Um, I don't necessarily pick a character, right? A lot of the characters that would come up from poetry are real. Um, I can't necessarily change my character when I go to write. I mentioned in one of my previous panels that one of the benefits of fiction is that if you write I in fiction, they don't assume it's the author. If I write I in a poem, they automatically assume it's me. So there oh, is there is that. no there is no not there's no option to not be diverse if I'm in a brown right. body. So that was never an option. That's interesting. Um, so kind of I always kind of dove into it head on. I mean, if we're talking about representation in fantasy and sci-fi, 
I'm kind of curious what everybody thought this was going to be about. Because um, uh, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's because minorities in fantasy and sci-fi or diversity in fantasy and sci-fi could could mean a lot of things. Like, are we are we responding to the modern attempts at you know inputting diversity into sci-fi? Um, you know, are we did people want to you know talk about Afrofuturism or you know something else? Like, I, I um, that would be a whole three. Yeah. 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 Tour, so yeah. it's it's almost um, you know do I get to just talk about House of the Dragon for the next thirty five minutes? <laughs> I've been telling everybody that I've been angling to do that's been my angle. But <laughs> um, uh, I think it's a really big conversation. I think that we're starting to have it now is really important. I think that's part of the reason you know you said you know I first for a while there I was too Asian now I'm not Asian enough. I think as I think there's going to be waves of that back and forth as we kind of move through different things. Um, because I think part of the part of the difficulties that we're experiencing now is um, we have spent so much time consuming primarily white Western European media that we almost don't know what else we want. <laughs> As a consumer base, we don't know where we want it. We don't know how we want it. So we're kind of throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks right now. Like we're like, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I think that's part of the pushback that we're getting right now is that we're really just trying things to see what sticks because we don't know what plays in terms of diversity. We don't know what people want to see outside of typecasting and outside of stereotyping. Right. So I'm, I'm really excited and curious to see not only what the authors on this panel can do, but I guess what you guys have to ask, what you guys have to say. The conversation's always shifting, too. Like I was saying on another panel, it's like, look, the advice I would have given 10 years ago is completely the opposite of the advice I give today yes. because the conversation has changed. Like, you know, people tried something, and that's the advice you got 10 years ago, and then it didn't work, so now we're giving different advice. You, you guys, you, you've brought up um, several different uh, uh, di directions that we could go in this from writing from your own identity and looking outside for other uh, communities to incorporate into your writing like Tantrum has. And, um, uh, or in, in your case, you're, you didn't, you're not writing from a Chinese identity, you're writing from an American identity. Um, and so there's a different kind of feel than somebody who is saying, I'm going to write to represent Chinese people in the American, mm -hmm. in the Western fiction, right? Or in science fiction. Or, um, uh, so that that's one bit that we could go on. The other one is this throwing things at the wall to see what sticks, which um, to me is fascinating. The Wheel of Time series, actually, the, the TV, the TV series came to mind because there was a huge blowback on oh. the diversity of casting um, because people read those books and all the characters were a certain way in their head and that happens in fiction when you read you envision the characters right mm -hmm. and um, so when they weren't the ethnicity or the skin tone or the background that, that was imagined from the book, there was a huge blowback on that. Um, and I, we've seen it in other shows too where they've cast because they're like, there was nothing in the book, and Sandman. Mm -hmm. there, was, there, there are some indications in the book that for example, that death in the, in the comic they drew a pale white girl. Well, there's, there's nothing in the character that that says that that's what she has to look like all the time, right? So there's been all this this public pushback, and I think that you're right. I think it's that we're throwing it at the wall to see what works. And some of the stuff works beautifully mm -hmm. because it really shows 
um, the the community and the the the, the characters. Ms. Marvel is a great yeah. is a Ms. great Marvel. example of that. Yeah, I was going to stick with death. I think yeah. de I think death and Sandman was a good example. Oh, yeah, death. Yeah. De that's my from the from the fun. series that this death was my favorite character in the comic and in the graphic novel and in the yeah. the series. Some um, people forget that um, before Samuel L. Jackson, Nick Fury was always. An old white man with yeah. gray hair. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the minute he was in, all the figures changed that where they were selling, and all of a sudden, yep. Even in Nick the comic, Fury, they're just like, yeah. All of a sudden, Nick Fury just changed in the comic <laughs> over, and I was like, well done. <laughs> and now no one can imagine anybody else. No, Nick Fury. no, no one, yeah. no one. Went back and changed the source material. I'm just curious. No as to there, what would, there would be none. Would you? What direction you like, you guys would be interested in going in this conversation? Well, I, I would want to talk about. Yeah, I think yeah. we had. I think we I had think two some questions. questions, and we'll see where yeah. that okay, goes. Okay, let's go that way. Well, I'm Star Wars came up, and I was going to say I thought that the last trio of, you know, they they were a lot more diverse. They had, I'm sorry, I'm skip, I'm forgetting people's names at this point, but you know, they John did Mayaga. have a black guy, and they had yeah. a Korean woman, and the women in it, and they had a really a lot of leadership <laughs> roles. Yeah. So I just wondered uh, if I mean to me that felt really good to see more yeah, diversity. Right. Like why wouldn't you have diversity if you're, you know, in so the same right, if it's this multi-universe or multi. So I have some thoughts about that. So I loved The Force Awakens, and that was one where like you could tell they were really trying to diversify their cast. You know, they cast John Boyega as basically the main character, like a, like along with Daisy Ridley, and they had Oscar Isaac also as like a co-lead, and so that was pretty awesome. And then along comes The Last Jedi, which was controversial for many reasons, but the one that really bothered me was they completely sidelined their minority characters. They made that, that movie all about you know the white main girl and then the white male villain, and the way the thing was written, even though Kelly Marie Tran and John Boyega got lots of screen time, their story was kind of inconsequential. Like even fans of the Last Jedi will sometimes be like, "Yeah, I don't know what was going on with that side plot because the main plot was about Rey and Kylo Ren." So that was an example of like someone who had great intentions. I'm sure, like you know, Ryan Johnson was like, "Look at me! I'm going to you know bring in an Asian woman to be like a main character. I'm going to bring back John Boyega to have a storyline." And yet he didn't know what to do with them. And John Boyega has actually in an interview like expressed some frustration. Like of course he's still a right. professional, so he didn't call anyone out by name, but just. Like, if you read the interview, like, read between the lines, you can tell he was frustrated by the direction his character went in. Because his character started off as almost like the new, like, Luke Skywalker type. Like, he was set up to be the hero of the new trilogy. And then in movie number two, he's completely sidelined. Movie number three, they have tried to fix it, but it was, like, kind of too late. By that point, everyone's focus had just shifted to these two white characters. And you have a different director at that point, too, so it makes it yeah. a better director. So, yeah, back and then, of the course, in movie number three, all of Kelly Marie Tran's lines could probably fit into a single tweet. Yeah, yeah. Aw, <laughs> uh, that yeah. poor girl. And John Boyega's would be the two-quote tweets following it. <laughs> yeah. He didn't have very many lines in the third one, either. Yep. Yeah, there were also implications that he was going to get force powers yeah. that were kind of sidelined. So th there's a lot of attempts at diversity that I guess would be best described as I guess, like disingenuous. Um, so I guess as we as we move towards you know doing diversity that's I guess genuine um, and moving away from doing diversity that's as a almost like black exploitation was where it's a, it's a metric of commerce where in order to make our movie more profitable we're going to throw a couple people in it so we can throw them on a poster. Um, so one we need to be able to recognize that as 
as consumers of media and two as writers of media. Mm -hmm. We need to be careful to not do it ourselves. Oh, you know what's a um, weird example? So I was so there's this opera Carmen from the 1800s, yes. and in the 1930s or 40s. Um, they adapted it into a Broadway musical where they took the same music and rewrote the lyrics and cast it with all African Americans, which was kind of an interesting artistic choice. And they actually made a movie of it, and I watched the movie, and I was like, I have such mixed feelings about this movie, because on the one hand, you gave this performance opportunity to all these black actors who might otherwise not have gotten to shine on the silver screen. I think the main actress actually got nominated for an Oscar or something. On the other hand, like a lot of the dialect is very like stereotypical. Like they do the whole like I apostrophe S thing, like I is going to do this, and I'm like <laughs> It was like an interesting yeah. attempt where it's like it was well intentioned, but it kind of was like something about this feels off. <laughs> yeah, um Oh. Yes, so uh, this uh, brought, I would think of many wonderful comments and questions. You guys are fantastic, but you really brought up something with the Carmen adaptation, and that is sensitivity readers and having people come in to make certain that what you are creating, especially if you're not an own voices writer, is going to actually be thoughtful, sensitive, and well handled. And what are some of your thoughts on sensitivity readers, especially with something like Star Wars that could have used a, had the budget for it and could have used a staff of sensitivity readers, right? I had a, I've done sensitivity readers because I, again, as I mentioned, I like to write diverse, but I also want to make sure I'm not wrong. Um, I've got a short story in the book, We Are Not This, um, and it's an entire book that we did with my publisher, um, you remember when the bathroom bill was going on in North Carolina? Oh, yeah. And one of the big hashtags that people were saying was, we are not this. And that's this book. And so all the short stories that are centered around LGBTQ+, plus, uh, it, it's all the proceeds of it go to support the LGBTQ people in North Carolina. And so we all signed away rights for getting paid for this. And I wrote this short, and I just loved it. It's called The Color of Love. and um, But it has two young men in it. Uh, one of color, and I was like, first off, not male, second, not of color, third, not gay. So um, I so I was like, I need a sensitivity reader, and I found someone who read it, and they pointed out a few things that they said, you are close, <laughs> but I would change this word here, and I would change this, and I was like, fantastic. And what was great is this, I want to put out something people love. I want to put out something people enjoy, and I don't want them to hit roadblocks of things that are wrong, and I want to make sure it's good for people. And so I think sensitivity readers are fantastic. Um, I, they also make me feel more secure when I release that book um, that I'm on the nose. Like, I spent six years doing research on all the Billy the Kid stuff so I could get that history as exact as possible. So there's nothing different for me as a writer between saying, okay, I need to do history, I need to know my history as much as I also need someone to read and correct me if I'm wrong on something that I'm writing that isn't me. That, that's a really good point for some, the usefulness of sensitivity readers because you know you can research all day long but you don't have the same experience. I don't have, I mean, I was, it's like if you're writing a legal drama sending it to a lawyer. Right, you know, yes. Exactly, it's the same kind of thing. You want somebody oh, yeah. who's, who's Who's living with that, with the experience of the character that you're writing, whether it's whether it's a lawyer or whether it's me writing an African African American man? It's I 
I have no experience. I can see what has happened on the outside. I can read about it and I can postulate, but I don't know how that feels. I'll never know how that feels. I'll, I'll never know what those um, those experiences are when I'm not looking, right? So, yes. so to have that kind of reader, regardless of what it is, pro professional identity or anything, I think it's super valuable. And I think that Hollywood needs to use it a lot more. <laughs> I think so. Too. Yeah. yeah. This is another thing where the conversation has kind of evolved, though, because so sensitivity readers became a thing, I feel like really around like 2014, 2015, mm -hmm. they became really popular. And then what was starting to happen, though, was some of these sensitivity readers were getting thrown under the bus because somebody would send them a manuscript being like, this is the manuscript from like the publisher. It's basically done. Just make sure like we didn't write anything extremely insensitive there. Right. It's, so they yeah, make yeah. sure we don't offend anybody. Yeah, so yeah. they read it and they would you know do their best and they have no control over what comments get incorporated and what don't. And the book comes out and then you know, book Twitter or something says right. this part is racist. Well then the publisher then goes, we had a sensitivity reader. It's their fault. And so right. yeah, oh, yeah, we did. That's <laughs> really well, wrong. It, uh, no, you and I, I think, but I was going to point out really to Star Wars and that effect too. It does sound like or feel like um, the the decision makers at the very end may have had a lot to do with pulling and cherry picking and picking. If I, I don't know the backstory, and I'm sure that people who are more familiar with the the later Star Wars series and the media behind it, you know, the behind the scenes stuff that people have written and everything as to whether and how much was actually left on the cutting room floor of these say, characters. Exactly. Because the producers were of the same mentality that Disney was when The Last Airbender came out, the live action. <laughs> and they're like, and they're like, they're and like well, yeah, of course we cast white people because Americans are, are ready to watch Asian people on the screen. Yeah, and then the director. And then <laughs> comes out and but you had, I'm sorry, you had a, a question. I, I just, uh, I was going to ask, because um, I think the conversation's really nuanced, and I think whenever people, they they call things out and they say, I don't think that character should have been this demographic or this character, this demographic, because sometimes people want to say, oh, well, that's because you're racist, and it's like, that's not all, that's all, that not, it's not always necessarily the case, you know what I mean? Like, the conversation is more nuanced than that, you know, so, I don't know. If you're yeah, if we're talking about like existing characters, like changing existing characters, like that was a problem with like Witcher, for instance. Witcher had a lot of backlash for changing the races of existing characters and like properties that were like really beloved. Um, uh, then we start to get into like questions about like adaption and like how faithful is adaption like to begin with. Right. And it, you're at like you're saying it's like really nuanced. If if the disqualifying factor. Here's the problem. If if the dis if the only criticism of a show is that, then that brings up questions of racism. It's like, oh, the show was perfect, but they went and changed their race to a black woman. <laughs> if that's the criticism, then that's uh, a questionable criticism. If and I think that's what people are pushing back at. If the criticism is, I hate that actress. That has absolutely nothing. I don't know why I went to actress, but I think I think <laughs> with the circumstance of Witcher, it was I believe particular female characters. I'm not familiar with that property, but I believe it was female characters, uh, female character that was beloved, and the race was changed. But, um, huh? Did somebody know? I think it was Triss. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, so I believe they changed a pretty pivotal female character's race, and so people were annoyed by that. Um, but there were very, there was very little talk about the actual quality of the actress. 
or how well, how like what was her speaking cadence like? You know, well, like um, so. One of the things about Samuel L. Jackson is that he really does a Nick Fury, right? So did she do a Trish? That wasn't the conversation. The conversation was that the race of the character had changed. And something um, that people will often say when you know filmmakers try to diversify their cast is, well, you should just cast the best person for the role and not try to like you know force like you know diversity or whatever. It's like, well, what if the right person for the role? like the best actress in that role was a person right. of color. Yeah. Like, yeah, what if, if she you, was just a better actress? If you watch yeah. Neil Gaiman burn people about Sandman, um, oh, a lot of his points, <laughs> he cast the best person for the role. It didn't yes. matter. He's like, why do you it always assume that the best person, yeah. Colorblind casting. In the movie, um, excuse me one second, um, Jesus Christ Superstar, ah. um, <laughs> people complained that Judas was a black actor. He says, you're trying to negate or you put you know negative things on the black people and he went no he showed up and gave the best audition was i not supposed to hire him because he was black meanwhile <laughs> let's go back to the fact that jesus was a middle eastern jew yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah another example in that kind of that same vein would be um night of the living dead i think it was night of the living dead the George A. Romero. That was an example of colorblind casting. He didn't go in looking for a black man. He just went in, and the black man was the best man for the role. And then when you get to the yep. ending of the film, where it has that kind of very lynchy vibe to it, where it almost that feels like a lynching is occurring, they didn't actually write that after they found the black actor. That's that was the tone of the scene before they found the black actor. And then he's when they got to the end, the studio said, "You're going to change that end." He said, "Nope." <laughs> Why would I change the end? <laughs> right? So um, there's a certain amount of um, integrity involved in colorblind casting that I'm not sure the industry is quite ready for. Um, well, is the audience ready for it either, too? Or do you I think the audience is a lot more ready for it than we give them credit for. We, yeah, I, think I, so. I think the audience is more ready than we, than we give and them I credit think the for. the people who aren't ready, well, then darn, guess what? Yeah. Yeah, I think the audience is a lot the world more is ready than we give them credit for. And you, need to, you need to step into it. Because, like I said, what I consumed as a teenager and a, as a younger adult yeah. represented me as a white European individual, and I never saw anything else that way. I grew up halfway in the South Pacific, so I had more exposure, but when I, when I lived in the United States, my neighborhood was white, um, you know, the, the people I hang out, hung out with were white, and it wasn't like there was any kind of 
overt or active racism. It's just that this was what was available. It was on TV. It was this was the general consumption, and so being able to see that representation and having raised a kid with more and more slowly, more and more stuff being on television and more diversity and everything. There's a lot, I'm noticing it, especially with younger generations, there is, there's a lot more just like, oh yeah, this is, there, there's more out there. It's not, it's not just us, right? So you had a comment? Um, um, I've done some various studies of European culture. And what I found surprising is that we culturally, uh, us white people, like to be bigots um, <laughs> because oh, if you're looking at that we are bigoted against each other i once saw this chart with 16 different caucasian types oh, and their tribal backgrounds and this is one group of caucasians warning another about what to be careful of um i think look out for the curly-haired white woman oh. <laughs> yes, when makes me sick our ancestors came came here uh, they may not have known they were bringing this with them, but they had been culturally trained to think that mm -hmm. way. Right. And when they find someone different looking, they go, like, they just immediately pick it up again. Um, I don't know what I'm saying exactly, other than the fact that we culturally were trained to do that, and now we have to somehow deprogram it. <laughs> and that's going to take just as much time, I think. But I think, I think so. in in media, and and this is this has been a great conversation on this, is that. The, the media is becoming more diverse, whether whether it's well-intentional, uh, well-intentioned, or just, um, well, we, we're gonna put it on this, because people want more diversity, we're gonna put this diverse, you know, this black character, or this Chinese character, or whatever, and um, on the poster, because we want more people to come in and really just pay lip service to, um, to making them real characters in the script, or in the book, or in the story, or whatever. Um, yeah, I think the more that we make that the norm, where or not the not the exploitation, but make the norm where we're just we're showing people, um, representing people, being people, doing people things, regardless. And there's still, and that you, I'm not saying you ignore the history and the cultural nuances and all of that goes with it. But the more you see the history and the cultural nuances and things like that in general mainstream, the more you're just like, oh, well, yeah, so mm -hmm. that's normal. There's, and the, I think the bias just starts to decrease the more exposure. But I, some people are going to dig their heels in. He, he had a so question. can you compare, like, in the 60s, we had um, Hogan's Heroes and we had Kinch? Well, I wasn't around in the 60s, but... Yeah, neither were most of you. I wasn't either. But, I've, yeah, but I've watched Hogan's Heroes. But there were people injected into regular broadcast TV, three networks, and that black people were just just there. And I mean, and we didn't make a big deal about it. And so... Or sometimes we did. But I think the, <laughs> the point really is, is in a lot of those shows... Spear Chucker Jones might disagree with right. you. Those characters were caricatures without... Mesh. Spear Chucker Jones. Mesh. Oh, yeah. But there, were, but there were a lot of shows, especially those, those shows in the 60s and 70s, where the characters were, were there. You, you saw uh, characters of different ethnicities. But if they weren't white, they weren't given a lot of depth in their lines, or they weren't given a lot of screen time. It depended on the show. I mean, Star Trek is one of my favorite shows. And so, um, you know, and Nichelle Nichols was a trailblazer as far as 
uh, as that went. But um, there were shows that, yeah, it was just like, oh, well, you know, we got this black guy in the background. We're just going to, we'll give him two lines and he'll seem like an idiot. And they play, they, they do a stereotype. And that, that, that went, that still happened. Speaking of Star Trek, so that was very well intentioned, but that was an example of how things had not yet evolved. Because if you go back and you watch the original series, yes, Uhura and Sulu are there, and most of the time that's all they are. Yep. They're there. Mm -hmm. The They're story there. is about, you know, it's about Kirk, Spock, and Bones, and, you yeah. know, sometimes Scotty, and, you know. They're just there. You'd be hard pressed to like find an episode that's like about one of them. Right. And, and when you do see them, they're they're kind of pawns in somebody else's game. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it, sticking with Star Trek, Star Trek was the, the the vision from Gene Roddenberry for Star Trek was envisioning an ideal world, and in that ideal world, there was diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Yes. And because of that, there should be people on these ships. Right. What I think a lot of us in the in the diversity community have been saying is that we've always been here. You just haven't been paying attention. Right. So the people that built this country would like to be represented in the stories of this country. So I think that's I think that, that we keep referencing Star Trek, but Star Trek comes from a really different place than I think a lot of the modern diversity is trying to come right. from. Um, I, so I I think that that I think that merits mentioning. Not to poo-poo Star Trek. I do love Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, it's doing but a, I it think plays the trail on its own to kind of get us in this direction you had it. Um, so you guys talked about when studios uh, underestimating the audience and I had questions about that because it seems a lot like people are very, very worried about taking us outside of our comfort zone and they almost act like we're hysterical babies but at the same time you get a lot of like, you get a lot of vit vitriol and venom aimed at people who are just doing their jobs like Mary Kelly Tran was um, Mary Tran? Mary Mary, sorry, can you say your name again? Kelly? Kelly, Kelly Marie Tran. Okay, I reversed it to Kelly Marie Tran was bullied off of Twitter. John Boyega yep. had an entire post where it showed him like kicking a lot of hate comments he got. Uh, and then with the new Star Wars series, people freaked out about there being black actors in it. People flipped out about there being black hobbits. They flipped out about there being a black elf. You think though, those uh, are uh, a very loud minority because yeah, the yeah, fact yeah. is all those properties Still are extremely popular, and I'm wondering, like, does it just seem like they're? Do these people are like, oh, there's like, 25 or less of the population acted like they hated this, so let's not do it, or is it where, like, how much of the vitriol aimed at it is a very very loud minority, and how much? Like, I'm, I guess I'm wondering how is underestimating the audience partially based on the very loud minority, or is more of it just like extreme caution around possibly losing any money or getting any bad press at all? I, I think that question is multi-layered because at the end of the day, the studio's gonna look at the, the dollar amounts. They're not gonna, they, yes. they're gonna be like, okay, so did we put in this, you know, we, we've got this, yeah, we got this pushback. And the, you know, um, I don't even know, did Disney even really defend her? Uh, probably not. I know with um, John Boyega's case, people were yelling and screaming the minute oh. the first oh, teaser for the first yeah, like literally all he did was stand up, and they're like, "Oh my god, there's a black Star Wars cheer so loud." <laughs> the studios are still like, "Yeah, we're going to continue the Star Wars franchise, and we're still going to continue to create characters." But then now I'm wondering, is like, are they pulling back? 
because of the pushback. But I do think it's just a very loud minority, and yeah, just I making think it, it awful. Because like the fact is, whatever you want to say we about the new Star Wars trilogy, that franchise like made a lot of money. Yeah, at the end of the day, the studios really don't care unless they're making money. Yeah, and it was the same with the Rings of Powers. Like people acted like it was such a big deal, then I watched it and I was like. It's still he, just these <laughs> characters fit in so seamlessly yeah, into yeah. the world. Um, and there's a black hobbit. Yeah, and yeah. I mean the black <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A single yeah. black hobbit, a single yeah. black elf. <laughs> and the thing was it what I liked about it was they had the Hobbit main character, Nori, is played by a Caucasian actress and she has parents and one of them is played by a black actress, one of them is played by a white actress, and then she has siblings who obviously look like her look like the black actress Hobbit. And I was wondering, I was like, huh, how are you going to work that in there? And then they put a line in about how his first wife, Rose, died, and then he remarried. But Nori calls, I can't remember if her name is Marigold or Lily, which I thought was very interesting. He marries two women in a row, and they each have a flower name. But... It's probably a Hobbit thing. It's probably less Freudian and more Hobbit. They're not Hobbits yet. That's her mom. And then there's like there's such an integrated part of the community and so built into the story and no one questions it. And yet people are like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't like it. And I was thinking about it and I was like, isn't it weirder that when you look at the original movies, they all look so Scandinavian? Because my mom, who's Mexican, was watching it and she's like, why are there so many blonde people? And I was like, you're right. That is odd. So, right? It does feel more weird the they're the power, <laughs> In a way, the rings of power kind of made more sense to me visually because I was looking at it and I was like, yeah, this is like what I see every day in my life. Like, right. You're seeing representation and in, in a way that is just incorporated without like hitting you in the face with it either. It's just this is the way the family is and that's the uh, interesting yeah. thing about rings of power though here's another bias that i feel like a lot of us don't even realize we have those harfoots are given weird irishy accents mm-hmm. and you can bet the irish have like so they, they feel some kind of way about There's that something to say oh, with always sure. being associated with like, yeah, dirtiness exactly yeah. that these like oh salt of the earth like irish ice but meanwhile the peter jackson movies they didn't do that like the yeah. hobbits had a yeah. variety of accents just based on where the actors were from well, so in this whole new century to update things. Sure. Like you yeah, don't I mean, have to adhere to something written. Yeah. I mean, I, should, I don't think we should criticize the way it was done before because that's just... Yeah. I wasn't criticizing it so much as it's like you don't notice it and then when you think about it, you're like, that is odd. Like, I don't <laughs> think on purpose he's like, I want it to look super Scandinavian, but I think when you're looking at it from a certain perspective, you're like, that is weird. And then when you see the Rings of Power, you're like... I would love huh. to hear from casting directors from some of those to see with how much direction they got on what type of, of uh, look and uh, background and everything that they were looking for, or if they were just like, we need to cast elves, and that casting director went, I want all blonde elves in this area, <laughs> right? I think where the decision making went on that. And, and yeah. also, the, the thing is too, is because of certain words being ambiguous like you could say the elves were fair and that can mean they were very good looking or I was thinking about long. that because <laughs> they did they said fair but that doesn't mean that they were fair complected it might mean they were fair and isn't pretty 
Yeah, and then there's also, like, because Tolkien did a lot of, like, massive, detailed world building, he would have different groups of elves, different characteristics. So it makes sense that, like, not every single elf is going to look like Legolas, and not every single Harfoot is going to look like the Baggins. Correct. Because that's what happens with humans. Like, you have a group of people who are like, you guys are Italians, and it's like, that, I think yeah, now we're some of us look like this, and some of us look like that. I, now we're falling into something where I think the studios are underestimating us, because nerds tend to understand a little bit about genetics and, and biodiversity. <laughs> and so, yeah, so we are sitting and we're thinking, and we're, we're, we're seeing that, and being like, okay, why are there just a bunch of blonde elves? Wand is a recessive <laughs> trait. Yeah, you know? it is. And, and so, you know, I mean, I Arwen and her dad had dark hair. Yeah. So why didn't anybody else There's a reason. <laughs> so, yeah, no, and that. that Let's makes, not forget this is all fantasy. Yeah. We can do whatever we want. That's absolutely, <laughs> that's absolutely true. And the and thing, too, is like counter. the argument of like this is Celtic or this is Nordic or this is British is if you look at the Vikings. They were incredibly widespread, mm -hmm. and they were in Afghanistan, they were in Russia. They were in China. Yeah. Oh, but they were there to get slaves, so let's not... I, I'm not saying they weren't they there were to, like, like, do Burning Man Part 2. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were slaving in those regions. Because, because they were Vikings and Burning Man. Yeah. And some of them would, like, stop robbing people and would be like, okay, I'm going to be a farmer, and I'm going to marry in now, and I'm going to stop being, like, a crazy murderer. Yeah. Or, you know, just raping and oh, yeah, there or, being products yeah. of that. You know what's yeah. interesting is if you Rape go to Central dish. Europe, there are a lot of very Asian-looking Europeans, thanks to uh, certain invasions that happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of that, too, I just looked this up the other day. The word for slavery comes from Slavs. Mm -hmm. Slavic. So I thought that was really interesting. That's like, I have Croatian blood and stuff. I was like, oh, people wouldn't even, they don't even know that. That was the yeah. I think that might have to do more to do with the language of the slavers yeah. over time than the nature of slavery. Yeah. The languages the slavers themselves would have spoken over time as opposed to the nature of like the history of slavery. That was a prime hunting ground for the Vikings. Yeah, I think they really were. Uh, it was. It was. It was, and that is only one type of slavery from one population. There, there was, yeah, there was so, um, yeah, slavery goes back a long, long time. Slavery is biblical, so I think that, that would go back a little bit further than the Vikings. And I don't think they use the word slav in the Bible. And if they did, I'm not sure it would then have its root in Scandinavia. Does anybody read Aramaic? I have no idea. Yeah, I definitely don't. Nor do I read Hebrew or any of the other languages. It I know someone who reads but Hebrew, but I can't get them. Yeah, not an old there enough. There people enslaved in the Bible, right? The Moses oh, yeah. reads them. Yeah, yeah. What did they call them? They didn't call them. I, I wouldn't know. I think I think a lot of times people use the, the word Slav, slave, Slav. It's like an implication that well, I'm trying to remember what the Latin word. For I, don't, I don't know what the I don't know what the um, Here, Google. Yay, Google. I don't know what the consequence of that fact is. It's it's interesting, but I'm not entirely sure what the consequence is because we know that slavers weren't entirely white, nor were slaves entirely white, and nor is nor did slavery start in Scandinavia. So I, I just I don't know what the implications of the history of the word is. You know, like all geysers are named geyser because of the geyser in Iceland, but I'm I'm the, right, the one yeah. called geyser. Its right. name is geyser. But I'm not. I'm not quite sure what the implication like of that is. Like, why? You know what I mean? Is it because yeah, like that's the first one we noticed? Yeah. Is it a nice name that we like? Yeah. So we were like, Geyser. That's fun to say. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, uh, the first dude who took a good picture. <laughs> um, the Scandinavian Vikings. I once went through a, um, a 
I guess it was a kind of a meet yourself for Scandinavians. But they told me some interesting things. For instance, the raiding parties, which brought in wealth, um, people felt strange about that with the Viking culture. For, uh, one thing is the poem about the uh, the wife who laments about the ocean and ships going out as the old gray widow maker. Um, I.e., a lot of those Vikings went out and never came back. Yeah. And this didn't always sit well with their culture either. So they were thinking, yes, it brings in wealth, but it also gets rid of some of our best young people. Right, but this is this is the story of humanity. I mean, any since the advent of civilization and, and adventure and voyaging and economy, people have been going out in groups to to raise their economy and not coming back. That's a it's a very long story, and the Vikings are just a part of that. But um, uh, that that leads me to uh, real quick. Um, now we're talking about uh, representation of Europe in a way, the history, and that this is something that I think that we kind of touched on is when we're bringing diversity into fandom in a way, in science fiction, fantasy, and, and, and movies, and television, and books. Um, as authors. You may or may not be consciously writing in, in, in your poetry. When you say I, like you said, when you say I, they assume you're talking about you. But let's say you were, um, when you bring that in, how much of the history and the background of the community do you bring in when you're talking now? I know uh, Stronger Than a Bronze Dragon, there's so much Chinese mythology kind of. Here's the thing, I made that all up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it feels, it's got, it's got yeah, a lot I made of feel it from Chinese mythology. Inspired by things I heard as a kid, but I actually purposely did not look up any real mythology because I didn't want to mess with that. I'm just like, I'm just going to make stuff up based no, on the vibe I remember my grandma telling me about when I was five. So, but, but there, was a, there was a history there that you're kind of pulling from, even, what, even though you're making this up, mm -hmm. right? You're pulling it from a history of the folklore that you, you learned or you heard from your grandmother, right? I guess. In a way. Inspired. <laughs> inspired, right? So we're, we're pulling from history, but um, like, well, Tamsin, when you when you write about uh, other communities or other characters and you're trying to develop a character that has a background that's not your own, how much of actual world, the history of the world that they would have grown up in or they would have been in, do you, because you, you said you did a lot of history on the, uh, research on this one. As a historian, my interest is, okay, how did we get here from A to up here? So how does a character get here? You know, because it, not just their personal history, but there's there's cultural history. There's there's this background, and, and like sometimes it's a mixture of them. Right. So I've got a shape shifting raven. He is a um, he's a skinwalker, and he comes from a tribe in Alaska, where the raven is their totem. And his entire and in, in certainly he shows up in the story, and that was actually very important to me. I want, how did he get to New Mexico? Like, what's this guy from Alaska doing in New Mexico? Like, let's answer that. Like, so when you were saying, you know, do we get to know the background? Do we know why? Either? Not necessarily his personal history, but, you know, what's, right. where he's coming from in a way. Yeah. Right, and it, it had to do with the fact that I looked up and I chose a tribe that most of them had been killed off because a bunch of the white men gave them pox, gave them the, you know, smallpox and, and blankets that were infested. and. 
and he got out. And then it's a story about, he talks about, you know, I don't, I did a lot of research. Of course, you don't give all of it the book. We're not going to go, I'm not going to go on like 10 pages. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I like, I researched you know, when he would have come into New Mexico and how he was found when, when they moved the Apaches into Fort Sumner. Like, that was important to me to show the horror, like what had happened, how we ended up taking care of. So yeah, I do the research for all of that, even though you guys may not see every little bit of it on the page if i'm going to bring a character and i want i need to know that cultural backstory i need to know about them and what makes them tick i don't but i have a theater background right where i used to run a theater company the and i was an actor so for me it's important to know that inner dialogue to know that backstory I, we only have a few more minutes left now this this kind of wraps up i think we're coming back to the how how can we better represent in in media and um and, and I think it's that understanding the, the uh, even just a little bit of the generational um, point to where we've gotten with this character and developing them as a, as a person. And that's every character, that's that's regardless of ethnicity or anything. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I we, we're gonna need to wrap up. So because uh, we've oh. only got a couple minutes left. How did that happen? But okay. I it's always happens with these kinds of panels. I have, yeah, I'm, I'm, like, I'm happy to go down and get a drink and we can talk more about this. <laughs> I was but, say, um, of course we, day, the next panel's about representation too. <laughs> <laughs> There's wine and cheese. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, you guys are doing the marble. Yeah. So they're yeah. already here. <laughs> I mean, what about cultural appropriation? Oh, that's that was the four PM panel. Whole separate can of worms. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, we're not even starting. We got four minutes. Yeah. There's no but way. But Vikings yeah. had dreads. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a whole separate conversation. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry if that was dismissive. Yeah, I didn't at all mean to be. Okay. So I had. Two observations. One, when you said well, but Vikings have dreads, there's actually someone on YouTube who talked about braided hairstyles in Europe versus in African cultures, and she said that's not true. They did have braids, but they did not. No. It's not from the same place. And then she talked about she talked about Polish people who were discriminated against because of their hair cultural practices, which I did not know about. And then she talked about. The well, primary, Polish jokes, though? primary um, sources that described people's hair that people looked at and they were like, oh, this is clearly describing African hairstyles. And they were like, this is from the point of view of people who thought that this group of white people, because it's a group of white people hating another group of white people, they described it like this because they were like, look at how backwards these people are. Mm -hmm. And like, that's not where you want to like base your argument. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about was. Uh, you talked about in the last panel I saw you went about how when they adapted the Grisha verse they threw in like a bunch of prejudice. Random racial yeah, slurs. Yeah. We also talked about Avatar The Last Airbender and when they have prejudice in there it's clearly boiled into the world making like people from the Southern Water Tribe are going to be treated badly by Fire Nation nobility mm -hmm. because they spent like the last hundred or so years trying to wipe them out both culturally and physically and then you're and like it's clearly baked in there so I, I guess my question was how do you make your world if you're going to put prejudice inside of your made-up imaginary world how do you do it in a way where it's not a misery one it's not a misery narrative and two it makes sense it's not like just like make it part of world building because the issue with shadow and bone is that it was not part of the world building like the nation that um the main character was 
you know, supposed to be half from, and that's why they hated her. It was barely mentioned. It was like, oh, she's half, like, shoe Han or whatever they called it, and we don't like them, so that's why we're going to start calling her a rice eater and this and that. But it wasn't part of the story. Like, that, if that war between her, like, her ancestral home and her current home was a major plot point, then, yes, maybe those things would have made sense, but it wasn't. Or Mudblood. Mudblood's a great example. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and then also... I think we're literally out of time. We are literally out of yeah. time, girlfriend. So <laughs> sorry. sorry. It's not like just one group that's hated, because in the real world there's like multiple like specialty hatreds we all indulge in, because humans are horrible and weird. So I just so. want to wrap this up with something that popped into my head that I should have addressed at the very beginning. A lot of the um, stuff that we're seeing now is a shift in the power dynamic. Um, because when you when you have a, 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 a group in power, that's what you're going to see. And so now what we're seeing is a balancing. Um, it's not there. This is my this is my opinion. You can disagree, but I feel that that's the part of bringing representation into our fiction is to understand that we that someone like me, for example, is coming from still from a position of power in society based on how I, what I was born as. As a white woman, I have more opportunities, but it's changing, and I think that's where a lot of the pushback is getting, is the people are pushing back and recognizing that there's a change, and they don't want to lose the comfortable place where they are. That, mm -hmm. that and they haven't understood that you don't, if there's no room at the table, you build a bigger table. You don't kick people off. So that's my last rant. So <laughs> I have some postcards up here if you want something to find me later. Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. If you enjoyed our show, please check out D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Ragnarok and roll a Scion Hero to Ragnarok Story. Also, check out our Patreon page for more content and behind-the-scenes things, as well as joining us for a one-shot game or two.